This week, in the very first episode of Unbelievably True Crimes, we look at a bank heist gone wrong in Edmonton, Canada. And after the police come around and start asking questions, it leads to a manhunt lasting over three years. This is Unbelievably True Crimes. Attention, ladies and gentlemen of the court. It's time for another case of unbelievably true crimes. Keep in mind that the case details you're about to hear may be completely factual, but it could also be completely fabricated. As your presiding judge, may I remind you that it's your duty to decide for yourself what's real versus what's not up until the very end. Now, let's begin. Welcome to Unbelievably True Crimes. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Ty. With me is my beautiful and creative wife. Hello, my name is Adri. That is Adri, my wife. So when you hear her voice, you'll know that it is not me. We want to welcome you to the debut episode of our new podcast, and this is the first episode of many to follow. We're super excited to bring Unbelievably True Crimes to fruition, and if you happen to listen to episode number 13 of Blue Falcon Radio, my other podcast, in which two of my buddies, the three of us, our law enforcement. We just talk about current events and uh, various other cultural things within the police force. And our goal is to bridge the gap between people who don't like police and the police themselves. So if you listen to episode number 13 of Blue Falcon Radio, you sort of have an idea of what you're in for with this podcast. If you haven't listened to that episode of Blue Falcon Radio's True Crime miniseries, I highly suggest you go and listen to it. So Unbelievably True Crimes is a podcast in which every episode we analyze a case study of a crime event that has taken place somewhere around the globe. The reason I say crime event rather than true crime event is simply because sometimes the crime you're going to hear is not true at all. Sometimes it will be completely fabricated, something that I've invented within my head. He's a liar! Now, sometimes we will look at completely factual true crime cases that have taken place in real life. No one except for me will know what is true and what is false. At the end of every episode, Adrian must consider, along with you, the evidence that I have presented throughout the entire episode. She will have to consider the elements of the crime, parties involved, the modus operandi of each suspect or suspects in relation to the crime, and so forth. She and you, the listeners, will have to ask yourselves whether what you heard is fact or fiction. And once Adria has decided, I will reveal whether or not the case was true crime or not. I think you'll find this show very interesting on account of the unique point of view that I bring to the table as a police officer. And Adria as well being a 911 dispatcher uh, as of about a week ago. So congratulations to Adri for getting that job. Thank you. I'm excited. So the reason I say unique point of view is because I am a police officer and I've investigated crimes myself. I've had to consider all of the things that you will have to consider during this show. Because of this, I really do believe that Adri and you will not have an easy time deciding what's real from what's fake. It's you and me against this guy, everybody. And it is my promise to you to make every episode as interesting as possible, regardless of the outcome, so that you keep coming back for more. Hang tight until the very end of this episode to discover whether or not this crime is true. And don't look it up as we go along, because it spoils it all. You'll have a much more enjoyable experience if you just sit back wherever you are and take every piece of information as it is presented to you. Let's begin. We're going back to the year 1986 in the very small village of Riley in Alberta, Canada. Riley is in the central part of Alberta and is just east of Edmonton. In 1986, the population of Riley was 239 
and one of those 239 residents is a man by the name of Robert Forrester. Robert Forrester was raised in the village of Riley after his mother, Anne Forrester, gave birth to him in 1968. Ted, or Theodore, which was his full name, met Anne Forrester in the year 1967, one year before Robert was born. In a book titled The Village of Riley and the Events That Shaped Us, published in 2002, Ted Welsh and Ann Forrester were featured in this book as one of the town's most prominent people to come from Riley. We will find out why later on. In the book, it states that Ann Forrester had been kicked out of her home by her father Preston one night in June after she had come home smelling of alcohol. Ann's father Preston was a farmer in the area and also the lead pastor at the local church, Methodist Church of Riley. Preston was apparently a very no-nonsense kind of man, and as a result, he didn't tolerate Anne's coming home intoxicated very well. Anne also lived with Preston and Preston only. So where was her mom? Her mother reportedly abandoned Anne and Preston shortly after giving birth to her in 1949, so she wasn't in the picture. Okay. At the time of meeting Ted Welsh in 1967, Anne was now 18 years old. In an interview with Anne for the book that had been published about the village of Riley in 2002, she states that after getting kicked out of her home by her father, she had nowhere else to go, so she walked down to the 24-hour diner on 50th Street called Nothing Fancy to hang out with her friend Bethany, who was working the overnight shift. The interview continues with Anne stating that Bethany was making fun of her the whole time because Anne was so drunk. Bethany then stole a pack of cigarettes from her boss's office desk drawer, and Anne remembers this quite clearly because this was apparently the first time that Anne had ever smoked a cigarette. Anne states that the cigarette was disgusting and it also made her vomit as a result. Bethany made fun of her for this as well. Wow, what a friend. Goodness. <laughs> when asked how old Bethany was, Anne stated that she and Bethany had graduated together a couple of months prior at Riley High School. They were both part of the 13 students that graduated in the class of 1967. Bethany had reportedly moved on to bigger and better things and was not interviewed for this book prior to it being published in 2002. The chapter about Ted Welsh and Ann Forrester continues with Ann stating that she remembers the first moment she ever met Theodore. She states that she had just told Bethany how ill she was feeling after vomiting from the cigarette that she had just smoked and also the abundance of alcohol in her system when a teal 1956 Chevrolet Bel Air pulled into the parking lot on the side of the diner. She states that at this point, a very handsome man, about six feet tall with dirty blonde hair, wearing a tight-fitting muscle shirt, corduroy pants, and black Chuck Taylor shoes, got out of the driver's side door holding a cigarette. She said she remembers him laughing because he had a, quote, brilliant smile. The dirty blonde man was accompanied by a male who was also smoking a cigarette, but she was not interested in this man because he didn't capture her attention like this other man. With the corduroys. Yes. <laughs> Anne goes on to say that the guy asked her friend Bethany if they were serving any specials, and Bethany told him to go inside and take a seat, and she'd be there shortly. Anne tells the publisher of this book that she was invited by the guy to eat with them, and he ended up purchasing her meal. She stated that the guy introduced himself as Theodore, Ted for short. She states that she drank coffee with him well into the night, and she also states that his demeanor and looks were simply sobering. She states that Ted invited her back to his place in Edmonton, and that night she lost her virginity to him at the age of 18. Anne stated that it wasn't until two weeks later when she learned that Ted was much older than her. Keep in mind, Anne was 18 years old. Ted, how old do you think he was? I was just going to ask that. Um, 
30. Ted was 32. Oh. She said she fell in love with him, and he was the kindest man that she had ever met. And in December of 1967, Anne found out that she was pregnant with a baby boy. Anne states that she was very hesitant to tell Ted she was pregnant for fear he would leave her. When the publisher of the book asked her why, she stated that he had kept telling her not to tell her dad Preston about their relationship for fear of backlash because of the age difference. Well, once Anne became larger due to the pregnancy, she was unable to keep it a secret from her father in the church. Okay, when did Preston find out that Anne was pregnant? So Preston found out that Anne was pregnant in January of 1968. And at this point, he told her that she was a disgrace to their namesake and immediately told her to pack what she could because she was no longer allowed to live a sinner's life under his roof. Preston refused to allow Anne to stay in the home from that point forward. During the argument that night, Anne advised Preston out of anger the man she had slept with was 14 years older than her, and those were the last words she ever said to her father. In the book, The Village of Riley and the Events That Shaped Us, one of the authors, Mason Vorse, asked Anne if she regrets the decision she made to never speak to her father again, and she replied with, Why don't you read this quote? Dad made that decision for me the second he decided he couldn't accept Robert, my baby boy. The night that Preston kicked Anne out of the home, she immediately went to the the nothing fancy diner to see if her friend Bethany was working. After learning that Bethany was not at work, she stated that she hitched a ride all the way to Edmonton, bags and all, and was dropped off at Ted's house in South Edmonton. In a police report from January 16, 1968, The officer who wrote the report states that in an interview with Anne, she stated that she got to Ted's house around 1945 hours. So that's 7.45 p.m. Mm -hmm. Officer Bishop writes that during the interview with Anne, the collar of her shirt was stretched out to a point that revealed red marks and scratches on her chest, as well as three fingers which were clearly outlined on the right side of her neck. Anne, described as approximately 175 pounds and 5 foot 7 inches tall, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed wearing mascara that was running down her cheeks as a result of crying. She stated that she knocked on the front door of Ted's house, and when Ted answered the door, he immediately questioned her about the bags by saying, what did you do? Oh my gosh, is he married? Ted? Yeah. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Officer Bishop continues the report and states that Anne told Ted that Preston had discovered the pregnancy. Okay, wait, so why is there a police report? So, we'll get to that. Ted reportedly ushered her in the door and immediately grabbed her by the back of the neck and pushed her onto her knees and then turned around to slam the door behind him. Anne states that at this point, Ted grabbed one of her suitcases and threw it so hard against the wall that it left a gaping hole revealing the insulation behind it before falling to the ground. Anne then comments that she knew something was seriously wrong because she had never seen her boyfriend like this and she knew deep down that this was not the real Ted. Anne continues by stating that at this point, Ted told her to stand up and began screaming at her for being an idiot. (laughs) Ted then reportedly questioned Anne consistently for approximately five minutes, but Anne states she was too emotional and could not answer his questions through her tears and cries. Ted then reportedly became extremely angry with her, grabbed her by the neck once again and pushed her up against the wall. She states that she tried moving, but he used his other hand and pushed it up against her chest. He then stated, no man deserves a woman that runs her mouth. But that doesn't make any sense. It's her belly that gave it away. Right. And Anne states that at this point, he let go of her, walked to the front door, 
opened it and threw her suitcases out onto the sidewalk at the base of the front porch. He then told her she needed to leave and should not return. So a nice guy. Super. (laughs) (laughs) Anne ends up moving in with Bethany, the friend who works at Nothing Fancy Diner, in her studio apartment in Riley. And then April 10th of 1968, at approximately 0325 hours, so 325 a.m., Mm -hmm. Anne gives birth to a baby boy she names Robert Forrester. Anne raises Robert jointly with Bethany in their studio apartment for the first six years of his life in between working part-time at a bank in Edmonton called Peace Hills Trust on 109th Street. In February of 1974, Anne and Robert move from the studio apartment to a house she purchases three streets north after Bethany moves in with a guy she meets at the Nothing Fancy Diner. During Robert's first few years of life, Anne and a few other people interviewed for the book mentioned in the beginning mentioned Robert as a very sweet boy and extremely bright for his age. Anne specifically states that she could tell that Robert was a smart, caring boy because he seemed to know what she was feeling all the time. Anne states that there were several moments she remembers quite clearly throughout her life where she'd be alone in her bedroom, staring at the ceiling, thinking about her father and Ted when her bedroom door would open and Robert would climb into bed and stare into her eyes. She stated that this happened often, but there was one specific time when Robert was six years old when she asked him what he was doing out of bed and he told her that he, quote, felt like mommy was sad and wanted to make sure she was okay. Anne states that she started crying when he said this and Robert then told her, read this quote. Everything will be okay. I'll protect you. So Robert seems like a very, definitely nicer than Ted. During Robert's upbringing, Anne states that he showed little to no interest for sports. The schools in Riley didn't offer much extracurricular activities, but she stated that Robert would often ask her to take him to Beaver Hill Lake, which was a large lake northwest of Riley. Anne stated that he never wanted to fish or anything. He just liked walking around the lake and looking at all the trees and birds that would swim in the lake. Girls. (laughs) <laughs> girls. <laughs> Anne told Mason Vorce, one of the authors, that going to Beaver Hill Lake was one of her favorite parts of being a mother to Robert because she got to see what type of boy Robert was deep down. She stated that she often felt ashamed of herself for never finding another man to be a father figure to Robert, but would quickly dismiss these thoughts after Robert would tell her that he didn't need anyone other than her. In 1982, Robert entered his freshman year at Riley High School. One classmate, Patty Klein, and also a teammate on the math club, described Robert as being very handsome. He always knew how to talk to girls. He knew how to talk to everyone, and everyone loved him. He was one of our best mathletes on the team, but he never let this get to his head. He always remained modest and humble. Another classmate, John Rorschach, stated, quote, Robert and I were best friends. We hung out together all the time, and he always knew how to make me laugh. In 1983, Anne stated that her manager, Richard Laswell, at Peace Hills Trust Bank in Edmonton, asked her if she knew of anyone who'd be interested in interning as a front desk attendant on Saturdays. Anne stated that she suggested her son at first, but told Richard that she'd first have to speak with Robert about it. That night, Anne states that she went home and told Robert about it, and he immediately told her that he wanted to do it. He was later hired two weeks later as an intern at Peace Hills Trust where he did odd jobs around the bank. So now he, he's working with his mom. Correct. Okay. They both work at Peace Hills Trust okay. at this point. In 1986, when Robert was 18, he graduated from Riley High School at the top of his class. There were 21 people in his class. 
Robert was then offered the position of head teller at Peace Hills Trust, where he would be in charge of counting all the drawers at the end of the night, as well as performing audits at the end of each week. In a police report, Ann is quoted as saying that Robert was extremely good at his job, he was extremely customer service driven, and enjoyed building rapport with all of the customers that would come through the bank. The following year, in 1987, Robert moved in with a guy he'd grown very close to named Travis Beltran. Okay, how did he meet Travis? Travis was a security guard overnight at the bank. Robert and Travis's house was located approximately three miles east of the bank. Ann states that Travis was very kind and he seemed to treat Robert with the utmost respect. Ann also stated that at times she felt as though Travis was a little jealous of how smart Robert was. When asked why she thought this was, Ann's quoted as saying, Let's see. Ann states, Just the way I'd catch him looking at Robert sometimes, when they'd come over and I'd make them dinner. I'd always catch his smile after Robert told an interesting fact. I don't know why, it just seemed weird to me. In a police report, it states that Travis described himself as an overachiever who came from nothing. His father was an alcoholic, and his mother was a prostitute for most of her life before dying of a drug overdose in 1961. Travis had reportedly spent years in professional counseling after the death of his mother, and some say he never was the same after that. In December of 1989, Travis was arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol. Robert posted his $2,000 bond, and as a result, Travis lost his job as a security guard at the bank because after an internal investigation, the bank's administration found out that Travis had drank that night on the job and then left the bank drunk right before getting arrested. Travis never got another job after that. Also later in the month of 1989, Anne resigned from her position at Peace Hills Trust for an offer she'd received from another bank across the city in Edmonton. In the early morning hours of February 12, 1990 at approximately 0200 hours, 2 a.m., Edmonton police were dispatched to a report of an alarm at Peace Hills Trust. The police arrived within minutes, but no one was inside or around the bank. The following night, February 13, 1990, at approximately 0245 hours, Edmonton police once again are dispatched to an alarm sounding at Peace Hills Trust. But after doing another search of the building in the exterior around the bank, they locate nothing other than what appears to be broken car window glass on the east side of the bank in the employee parking lot. After interviewing the personnel at the bank when the bank opened that morning, out of 45 personnel involved, no one recalled having seen anything like that when they went home from work the day prior. Two employees were not interviewed that day. And who, who were those employees? Well, I only know of one, and that one was Robert Forrester, who had called into work due to an illness. In a police report dated February 27, 1990, it states that Robert had checked himself into the emergency room the morning of February 13th, with cuts on his face, a fractured nose, and a severely cut thumb. In the medical evaluation, it states that Robert advised the charge nurse that he had fallen on a run the night prior. On Thursday, February 19th, 1990, police are dispatched to a report of a holdup alarm at Peace Hills Trust at approximately 12.45 hours. So this is the third time the alarm went off? Third time. So 12.45 p.m., so around lunchtime. When they arrive, employees and a few customers are described as being in a state of hysteria. Several female employees were crying and shaking in fear. In the same police report dated February 27, 1990, witnesses state that two men entered the bank carrying firearms. The men were reportedly wearing masks 
that covered their entire faces for the exception of the eyes. When asked if they could see a specific eye color, witnesses stated that they could not. One male was described as being approximately 6 feet tall and approximately 190 pounds, while the other was described as being approximately 5 foot 8 inches and approximately 170 pounds. One male had reportedly fired around into the air as the other stayed by the door that they had entered. After the panic alarm was activated by the teller, witnesses state that the taller male immediately began demanding the money in the back vault. When the teller advised the male that she didn't have access to that, he reportedly looked back at the other masked man who was guarding the door, who then yelled, quote, liar, yes you fucking do. Upon hearing police sirens, both males, according to witnesses, jumped over the counter and exited the bank out of a set of back doors. After a six-hour-long investigation at the scene of the unsuccessful armed robbery, police located nothing of value except for a VHS tape with security camera footage containing footage from the lobby of the bank, the front door, and the back door. Also seized from the scene of the crime was what appeared to be a small piece of cotton with what appeared to be blood on it. This cotton ball was sent to the Alberta Provincial Crime Laboratory for DNA testing. It should also be noted that in the roster for employees at work that day, all employees were accounted for except one. Who was that? Robert Forrester. Oh, God, that liar. <laughs> Police went to Forrester's residence that he shared with the former security guard of Peace Hills Trust, Travis Beltran. In the police report, it states that Beltran came to the door after approximately three minutes of knocking. He was apparently naked except for a towel wrapped around his waist. When they asked if Robert was home, Beltran stated that he had gone to his mother's house for dinner. Police then went to Ann Forrester's house in the village of Riley, where they located Robert. Robert was then asked if he was willing to participate in an interview, which he stated that he would. During this interview, Robert is described as being extremely nervous. The detective working the case, lead detective Amelia Dryden, wrote in her report, During the early stages of the interview, prior to the interrogation phase, Robert Forrester had already begun exhibiting signs of extreme nervousness such as lack of eye contact, shaky hands, profuse sweating, inability to sit still, and constant touching of the face upon being asked questions. The interview lasted approximately eight hours, well into the following day on February 20th. Oh my, that, that's a long interview. It's a very long interview. Oh my goodness. At the conclusion of the interview, the police allowed Robert to leave after first serving him with a search warrant for his blood signed by Justice of the Court Lamar Madu. Police then transported Robert to University of Alberta Hospital in Edmonton, where a phlebotomist drew his blood and secured it into an evidence box, which police eventually sent to the same lab that they sent the cotton ball secured at the scene of the bank robbery, Alberta Provincial Crime Laboratory. On March 2nd, 1990, police received a letter as well as the original evidence from the crime lab, stating that the cotton ball that they'd sent in from the crime scene at the bank had not matched anyone in their database. On March 4th, 1990, Ann Forrester reports her son, Robert Forrester, as missing. In an interview with police, when asked why she thought Robert had run away, Ann states, read this. Probably because you fucking assholes kept him in your little interview room for so long and made him out to be some kind of criminal. Later in the interview, after asked where she thought Robert may be, she stated, I have no idea. If I knew that, I sure as hell wouldn't be here. On March 10th, 1990, they received another letter from the crime lab stating that Robert Forrester's blood had matched with the bloody cotton ball that they had originally sent in on February 19th, 1990. 
And where did the cotton ball come from? The crime scene at the failed arm robbery at the bank. And what did he have a cotton ball for? Well, actually, we, we don't know at this point. At this point, an arrest warrant for Robert is issued and signed by a judge, and from there, a manhunt ensues. In an interview with Robert's roommate, Travis Beltran, they asked him if he knew anything about the armed robbery at Peace Hills Trust, to which he replied, quote, I don't know jack shit about that. I know what you guys said to Robert, too, and I know that's probably why I'm in here. You fucking pigs don't give a fuck about Robert and his well-being. You're just looking for a scapegoat to close this case. Beltran is eventually released from the interview at approximately 2100 hours, 9 p.m. that night. Months pass, and Robert Forrester is never located. Oh my gosh, he's still gone? He's still gone. In the book about the village of Riley, Anne states that during this time, it was, quote, a constant drain on her quality of life and her identity as a mother. Yeah, I can only imagine that. On July 22nd, 1990, in the early morning hours, a cold case detective at the Edmonton Police Department is watching the security camera footage from Peace Hills Trust when he notices a small smudge on the ankle of one of the men leaving the back door of the bank. The still image is sent to a specialist who manages to clear it up just enough to allow detectives to see the outline of what appears to be the letter C. After further review and cross-examination with jail booking photos of prior cases, detectives are able to learn that the tattoo closely matches the tattoo that Travis Beltran has on his ankle in the booking photo from his DUI arrest in December of 1989. The police then interrogate Travis once again, where after eight hours he confesses to the attempted armed robbery. When asked who was with him, Travis is quoted as saying, What do you mean? I was alone. In the police report, it states that after saying this, Travis started laughing. Yikes. <laughs> Before the trial on August 15, 1991, the prosecuting office offers Beltran a plea deal, which would mean five years less in prison if convicted of the crime. If he tells them who was with him during the attempted armed robbery, he declines the offer. Consequently, the jury finds him guilty, and he's eventually sentenced to 10 years in prison. On September 2nd, 1993, while out on a walk with his dog, Nathan Dorn's dog named Spitz runs away from him, and Dorn later finds his dog a mile or so north of where they were walking at Beaver Hill Lake. Dorn states that it took a while to find Spitz, but he eventually found him in a small cave-like area with a beautiful view of the lake. He stated that he saw Spitz was sniffing around near a very large rock, but he couldn't see very well because of the darkness. It was also an overcast day, as Dorn recalls. Dorn stated that he pulled out a pocket light and noticed what appeared to be a human skeleton with very worn clothes that were ripped in all places. How long has Robert been missing now? So Ann Forrester reported Robert Forrester missing March 4th, 1990. So this is okay. about three and a half years later. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Okay. Dorn calls the police and police get there and the scene is photographed and the bones and clothes are collected. A spent casing from a single bullet is also seized. A handgun is also located next to the body. In a police report written by Special Investigator Beth Mannett, she writes that upon further investigation of the skull at the office, a hole can be seen at the crown of the skull. The clothes are then examined by a specialist at the Alberta Provincial Crime Lab. Inside a back pocket of the jeans is a small piece of paper. On that paper is what was once several words written down. Through an ink restoration process, only one word is able to be clearly identified. The word is protect. Approximately a month and a half later, the skeletal remains are identified as belonging to Robert Forrester. To this day, it is unknown whether Robert Forrester played a role as the second gunman in the Peace Hills Trust attempted armed robbery. At the end of the Famous People chapter in the book, 
the village of Riley and the events that shaped us, one of the interviewers asked Anne Forrester if she believed that Robert was the unknown gunman, to which she replied, and I want you to, to read this. You know, that doesn't even matter to me at this point. I don't think it ever did, and shame on you for asking. I lost my baby boy. He was my whole life, and now all I have left is our memories. He was a good boy, and there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about that night. He sauntered into my room after bedtime and crawled up on my bed to tell me he would always protect me. I miss him so much. And that's the end of that case. Oh my gosh. What do you think about that? I think, I just don't think that was enough reason to shoot yourself in the head. You robbed a bank. Do you think he shot himself as a result of being afraid that the police might catch up to him for being the second gunman? I mean, it seems that way. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. It just seems really, it seems really sad. That's a very dramatic thing to do. Well, most of the crimes we see are not very happy. So with all of that information, taking into consideration all the, all the people involved and all the facts of the case, what way are you leaning, true or false? Think this is, this is a true crime or is this something that I completely made up? I'm leaning towards this being true. I mean, as unbelievable and sad as I think it is that that kid, you know, killed himself over robbing a bank or, but I'm leaning towards this one being true because it seems probable. Well, let's find out. <laughs> it is made up. Oh, what? It is completely false. Made that up. Right off the bat, just episode one. Just made it up. Figured we'd have to uh, start with a... Oh, my. A not true crime, a fake one, a made up one, if you oh will. Oh my God. Just to uh, give people a little glimpse into the things going around in my head that allow me to make up these types of, of crimes. It oh. also takes aspects of crimes I've investigated myself, which makes it, you know, kind of a lot easier to make these things up because I do have experience with investigations and sending evidence to to crime labs and things like that. So I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of information on how things work behind the scenes that the general public doesn't get to see, which allows me to make these kinds of things up in such detail. Unbelievable. Unbelievably <laughs> true crimes. <laughs> so that's going to that's gonna wrap up episode one. We hope you enjoyed that. That was fun. Hopefully it was fun for you as well. Again, you're never going to know. You're never going to know what's real, what's not. Maybe maybe I'll mess something up in one of the future episodes. Maybe I messed something up in this episode and you were, you were able to tell that this was completely made up. Those are just things you're going to have to really pay attention to if you want to catch me in a lie or you want to decide whether something is actually true crime. So hopefully I was able to fool you. I hope I fooled you. To wrap up, we have a uh, Instagram page at Unbelievably True Crimes. Uh, we also have a Facebook. What is that? unbelievably true crimes facebook.com slash unbelievably true crimes we do not have a twitter maybe in the future we'll get that but i'm not a big fan of twitter if you think we should get a twitter let us know also if you have ideas for future cases or criticism on this episode please email in to unbelievably true crimes at gmail.com or send an instagram message to at unbelievably true crimes or a facebook message facebook.com slash unbelievably true crimes again we hope you enjoyed episode one of Unbelievably True Crimes, this being unbelievable <laughs> because it was not real. Not it was real. not true crime. Oh my gosh. If you have any advice or anything like that, again, this is episode one, so we're wanting to establish ourselves within the vast array of 
true crime podcasts. So if you liked it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the purple icon on your iPhone. Write something nice. Give us five stars. That'll just drive us up the charts and allow more people to listen to it. And please definitely send in story ideas. If you know of any really good crime stories, I'm all about the crime stories. We're both kind of twisted and we bond over murder stories and all that dark stuff. And we're very strange. (laughs) We're very strange. We're not alone. You guys are out there. I know you guys are. So again, thank you for tuning in to Unbelievably True Crimes, episode one. And we'll see you for number two. Thank you for listening to another case of Unbelievably True Crimes with Ty and Adri. We appreciate your attentiveness and good judgment throughout the hearing. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Also, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes. Until next time, court is adjourned. Thank you and good night.